0: I am a technological determinist Marie.
1: A technological de- oh, wait a little bit. a technological determinist. So you're saying that uh the advances in technology enables and makes um uh sort of uh ethics um, Change, sort of decide the ethics. Yes, and politics right. and everything else. So essentially, so
0: essentially, like, so essentially, okay. Essentially, okay. essentially, in a world mm-hmm. where, um, in a, so you can imagine, like in a world in a world inter-
1: gone mad, yes. in a in a world okay. with the
0: internet, right, and where uh-huh. labor uh-huh. is essentially uh, labor has been distributed to the point where it's like people, most people are in service jobs; they are not actually doing labor anymore. Um mm-hmm. that society now, mm-hmm. the main commodity is no longer labor or is no longer labor. It is privacy. Mm-hmm. It is your information. And yes. so well, we're no longer trading yes. in and politics is no longer determined by uh, you know, the union guy or whatever. It's determined by who has the best digital operation to collect and sell your personal information. And that will then have ripple effects to mm-hmm. everything else right? So, I mean, it's essentially like a type of economic determinism, which is on its own a type of uh, biological determinism. You know, and I mean, listen, my, my viewpoints are not... We, listen, Marie, we host a show about ghosts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we talk, you know, there, there's not a lot of... There, it's really hard to make the case that ghosts could exist and then also be a, a kind of a determinist in any sort of way. But I think at least, you know, there's some wiggle room there or whatever, mm-hmm. but that to me has always mm-hmm. been the most compelling political i guess or even political that to me has always been a very compelling sort of social anthropological argument that technology in some ways decides what we consider to be okay or permissible in a society
1: Um, yeah i mean i think it's it's more just a reflection of of i don't know it's just a reflection of people too i mean they oh, probably said the same thing about television too. I mean, I, I think you're right in a certain regard, but like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's sort of hard to be, it's sort of hard to be corollary when you're looking at, cause I, I agree with you about data. Like I think, I think the biggest mistake that we have is, is allowing a private company or really allowing anyone to amass information to that degree and not have it, have any sort of transparency or have it be safe. Yeah. That's a huge issue. But I also, I don't know, I think that that argument, you know, you, you can apply that argument to a lot of different other times when there was a technological advance and have the same sort of, and have the same sort of, um, I don't know, have the same sort of argument to it. And well, I don't know if it, you know, do you know what I mean? It's like, I don't know if television did us in.
0: Necessarily no, no, no. I, so that's the thing. Or is bad. I don't, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think oh, any. I don't think any of those changes are necessarily bad or good. They're just different. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? They just change our society. And you so think if,
1: that you think that those are the, the biggest things that are changing society, though. That's or that's the those are the biggest influences.
0: I think that the yeah. I think I essentially think that the way that we interact with the world, which is technology, mm-hmm. is the mm-hmm. are the biggest things that change the way we think about the world and the way and our place in it. I I do think that yes.
1: But then what, what about pre-technology? What was, what was it then? The church? The printing press?
0: There's always been technology though, right? Before, before oh. science, yes. before – There's always before, been advances. Before yeah. modern science as we knew it, yes, we were, we, were, we were magical, we were spiritual, we were religious, right? And then now right. as we've gotten better be, at okay. science, mm-hmm. science has taken over as religion essentially. And so today our morals are shaped by technology and science as opposed to before when they were shaped by how we thought the world worked, how we thought the natural world worked. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't really how the natural world worked. And in, and in a thousand years when we have escaped our biological bodies and we're brains in jars or whatever. And we're, just, we're just brains in boxes,
1: man. I'm looking forward to that day. Yeah.
0: Like when that happens, our our morals and <sighs> societies will change again. And you know what I mean? Like that's the –
1: yeah. I'm with, ah, yeah, yeah yes, kind of. Kind the, of. Problem, I, I the, problem,
0: the problem with it is it completely discounts the idea that there are some things that mm-hmm. are almost timeless. Evergreen. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, would a brain— there's a fixed moral. Right. Yeah. Would a brain in a jar—could a brain in a jar love another brain in a jar in the same way that a human today could love a hum- another human? Aww. Like, I don't, I don't well, it's know. kind of a sweet thought, though. Is it two well, brains no. <laughs> banging on each other? Just
1: ridiculous, Marie. But- <laughs> well, so, so two brains. So then it's the love has to be sex. So that right there. No, 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 It doesn't,
0: it doesn't have to be sex. No, no. But I'm, but I'm, but really though, what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, I guess, um, if you were just a if you were a brain in a robotic body, Right. Free okay, of, so
1: forget, yeah, forget Yeah, forget the box. We're not in the box yeah. anymore. No,
0: you're a brain and a body. Right. You still have a body.
1: We're but, a brain and a body. But Robotic maybe, body.
0: maybe okay. we don't have smell. Maybe you don't have a sense of smell, right? Oh,
1: okay. Does that okay.
0: change okay. the quality of the love to such an extent that we can consider it to be a different sort of love? Because they're not smelling, well, you know, pheromones or whatever the hell, you know.
1: But there's people now that don't have a sense of smell.
0: Right, and so... Yeah, and they pose a, and and that's the whole thing here, right? That's the whole. They can fall in love. They can. I I don't see. They can, but their experience is, but that's the thing though, because their experience is not the dominant experience, how they experience love is not the way (laughs) that like society thinks of it. Do you know what I'm saying? You know what? I don't.
1: I don't think you know what we're saying. Just- <laughs> <laughs> We've gotten deep in, Marie. I'm just, we're just like, that was like the best non-sequitur open for something that we're not even talking about in the episode ever. That was deep. Oh my God, that was funny. Was so, was, that was listeners,
0: deep. the reason why Marie and I started out this episode discussing economic determinism is because we're starting <laughs> to do advertising on the show. So... Here's the deal. So, for those that have been listening to the back catalog recently, you'll have noticed that ads have been placed. We're attempting to place them as gingerly as we can. It's a little hard when you talk as quickly gingerly. as I do. Um yes. but we are surgical precision. Trying to use surgical precision to add ads in. We're still kind of in the process uh-huh. of trying to figure out, you know, where's the happy medium between too many ads and enough ads that we can kind of pay the people that help us work on the show. Um, yes, those kinds of things. It's but it's still a capitalist society, even
1: though, yeah. even though we are devout Marxists, we still need to pay bills. <laughs> but so the
0: idea, the idea here the for the ads, need
1: some food.
0: <laughs> the idea here with the ads is the show is growing. We want to make it better. We want to get better equipment. We want to be able to help the the people who edit the show, uh, Jake. In particular, (laughs) who edits the show right now (laughs) essentially for free, yes, on top of a real day job and an awesome band and everything else. We want to help, uh, you know, Desdemona, Desdemona, who does does our art, our our web design, our you know, all uh, 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 on and on and on and on. So, as part of that, we're hoping to do advertising, or we are now doing advertising. If you have a product as a listener that you'd like to see advertised on the show or you are in a business that would like to purchase ad stuff from us, please let us know. We'd love to have you on. Um, and yeah, hopefully it hopefully we're yeah. great. We're going to see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's going to be wonderful. Yeah. So with that, uh, Jake, roll the tape. <laughs> Hey,
1: what's going on? Yes! We're going to space! Woo! We're going to space, man. We are going to space. All right. It's about time.
0: So, last episode of the Bigelow series. We kind of yada yada our way to... And then Nids ends. We're going to go through a little bit more this time. Just a little bit more. So, Mm -hmm. this point in the series, or this point in time... We are kind of, so NIDS will end in 2004, somewhere around there. But it's winding down from essentially like 1990, 1999, I should say, rather. Winding down. Um, mm-hmm. And to start with in this series, or this part of the series especially, we need to give a huge shout out to um, Isaac Coy, Keith Basterfield, uh, Alejandro Rojas, uh, just you know, doing a lot of this, getting a lot of this information around there. Um, John Greenwald too from the Black Vault. There's a there's a huge number of people that just do research in this. Um, Dave Scott for doing some of the interviews with people and having them on. Erica Luke's for a lot of the information on uh, Bigelow Aerospace itself. There are a lot of people doing research in this stuff that are that are kind of not uh, not sung from the rafters, I guess. That we're using their source work and we're using looking at their sources and and pulling from and, and trying to keep everything straight here in this story that is so complicated so please follow the links go find those people's blogs find their stuff check them out anyways by 1999 bigelow has spent almost 10 million dollars on ufo research
1: Jeez, and has that's a lot
0: nothing a lot. nothing to show for yeah, it
1: that we know of well, but also it's like I think that there was a lot – he spent a lot of money in general as well on sort of more privatized research that touched on
0: uh phenomenons that aren't really readily explained. Yeah. Um In – around this time too, so 1999, 2000, around that time period – the evidence and the information about the Carpenter affair really starts to come to the forefront. Now, one thing that was pointed out to us by Jack Brewer of the UFO Trail actually on Twitter was that one of the main people to come out against John Carpenter was his wife, who was an experiencer and claimed that her hypnotherapy sessions had been leaked and sold to Bigelow. Um, yeah, interesting. That's why he claimed in that, in that uh, email chain that his wife was the one behind it all um he's kind of right it's always the spouse it's always the wife it's Um, always the wife so the the carpenter affair really kind of blows the lid off this mufon nids connection and it creates a lot of significant controversy it kind of causes bigelow to step back from mufon for a couple years although he's going to step back in pretty soon he never really goes away as far as we can tell Around the time of NIDS closing, though, so around 2004, 2005, around that time, we also start to hear rumors and rumblings from former NIDS members, supposedly. Mm -hmm. Now, one of those members will put out a will put out a, a letter, I guess you'd say. And this was going around UFO forums and mailing lists at the time. We have not been able to verify this letter. It is written by one Dale Stevens, supposedly, with a very old email. It's published on July 2004.
1: At earthlink.net, something like that. So right? yeah,
0: at cox.net. <laughs> but so what, what he says, though, we're going to read some of this. We're going to read some of this letter. And the reason we're going to read some of this is because it fits with a lot of the other stuff that is going to come out in this series or a lot of the other information that has come out about how Bigelow has run the ranch and generally runs things just normally. Okay? So here is this here is this quote. So uh quote I recently sat down for lunch with a former staff member of the National Institute for Discovery Sciences, NIDS. As a longtime follower of the UFO field, over the years I had often heard stories and read rumors on message boards posted by conspiratorial minded ufologists that NIDS was a front for the CIA that NIDS had in its possession a crashed alien spacecraft, that NIDS was privy to secrets regarding alien technology and many others. Now that my acquaintance was no longer in their employ, I pressed for answers to these wild claims. As I suspected, nothing could have been further from the truth. Many in the UFO community looked to NIDS to solve the UFO problem. Some seemed to spend more time and energy gossiping about what NIDS was investigating, what NIDS should be investigating, or what information NIDS was hiding than doing any original research of their own. Editor's side note, burn. Um, I learned that the real question is not what stunning information NIDS is hiding, but how a research organization could have such a poor track record of accomplishment over such an extended period of time. Editor's note, double burn. My acquaintance (laughs) confided that, largely unknown to outsiders, NIDS fell prey to a variety of internal problems. Poor management, lack of direction, lack of creativity, lack of funding a negative company culture, poor hiring decisions, and low morale fueled by annual layoffs. This was compounded by the elusive nature of the field of study. In one example, when my acquaintance, newly hired, asked for direction, the response given was to spend a couple of hours a day surfing the web for items of interest. According to the former staff member, the unwritten rule for survival at NIDS was stay below the radar. This applied even to the administrator. Um... And then they said uh, the following, while many lessons can be learned from the problems of the National Institute for Discovery Sciences, for now, the UFO community should simply know that after nine years, NIDS's research organization is over. Investigator Roger Pinson quit in January 2004, and with the May 2004 layoff of Deputy Administrator Bruce Cornett, there is no investigative staff remaining. Dr. Cornett moved across the country to take the position in NIDS only to be laid off by Bigelow less than four months later with no severance package and before he was there long enough to collect unemployment. While you wouldn't know it from looking at the NIDS website, the focus of the Science Advisory Board was long ago shifted to mainstream aerospace research. The National Institute for Discovery Sciences now consists only of Administrator Colm Kelleher, a receptionist, and a part-time site designer. End quote. So basically it's a lot like what you
1: read on Glass. or whatever the website is about bigelow aerospace if you go in and look at the reviews the like the ex-employee reviews of working there it's scathing
0: they are bad
1: how how awful it is and i these aren't for people this it's again it's not like conspiratorial you know one way or the other it's pretty much like people who went to work Bigelow Aerospace, in a number of different occupations. And they there's a lot of them that are saying the same thing, which is just, it's paranoid. They are poorly run. There's nothing, you know, there's... Uh. So it's sort of, to me, it's very interesting, but this highly, you know, I, this research group that was doing something very secretive or, you know, relatively perceived as secretive, had the exact same experience, like yeah. zero severance. So there's
0: actually, well, there's actually a quote. So some of the Glassdoor quotes, this one's from 2019, uh-huh. um, quote, there uh-huh. isn't enough room to provide all the cons. Every day you wonder if you're going to be fired on the spot and walked out by guards. The morale in the company is completely shot because of this. They're so behind on technology that you actually revert backwards in your career progression. They have taken away email and internet away from half the company because the owner doesn't trust his employees.
1: Dang,
0: yo. I mean, that's, that's... that's uh, Yeah, another one, another one, another one says, um, do not move here, do not work here, do not trust anyone. This place is run like a prison. If (laughs) RTB personally invites you to come work for him, you will be making a very costly decision. Do not put your trust in him as I did. Impossible to have a career here. His immediate inner circle knows nothing of leadership, has no experience in management, and are horrible people that only care for themselves. The person also says, uh, DOL slash OSHA seriously need to investigate Bigelow Aerospace. NASA is foolish to work with him. The rest of the reviews are true. Um, and then one from management says, quote, ungrateful employees who think they are entitled to more than they deserve. You are not irreplaceable. And if the people writing these reviews are caught, they will be terminated immediately. Engineers and machinists need to realize they are a dime a dozen and people are begging for jobs here. You should be grateful to be a part of this team and grateful for Mr. Bigelow and his management team's experience. For those of you who are loyal to Mr. Bigelow, thank you for the rest. So, management is watching and you will find out just how replaceable you are.
1: See, I think that might be a plant to me. I would assume that would be somebody who is.
0: Yeah. If it reads like a plant, say something. it reads like a plant.
1: Now, that one reads like a plant. Like definitely. But I would say like, man, yeah, that's awful. And those are
0: those that's are awful. just those are just some. There's loads. So the company we're talking about here, Bigelow Aerospace, is founded in 1999. It's founded in the middle of the NIDs years, but it's essentially founded as NIDs is starting to die. And so the people yeah. that were working on NIDs appear to have been shifted over to the Bigelow Aerospace side of things. Although again, mm-hmm. from that letter, we also have confirmation that the NIDS Science science Advisory Board wasn't really the NIDS team per se. They were mostly, the NIDS team were people they hired to come live and work on the ranch, right, and perform, you know, investigations, quote-unquote. So that's kind of where things sit in 1999. And so he begins Bigelow Aerospace. And with that, we are going to have a word from our sponsors. From our Sponsors. And we're back! mm mm Thank you, sponsor. So, Bigelow Aerospace founded 1999. The goal of Bigelow Aerospace really is for people to be able to get out into space. Space tourism has been a Bigelow pet thing for seemingly a long time. The initial idea is the creation of inflatable modules, which will allow for low-cost creation of enclosures in space for habitation. So... You can imagine right now one of the biggest challenges about getting out into space and building places for people to live is how do you actually transport all those raw materials um, mm-hmm. every ounce of extra weight on a ship is another you know i don't know x, x amount of dollars yeah. right yeah of space fuel of, of of rocket fuel of space fuel of, of space, space rocks fuel. Candy, <laughs> of of rocket fuel and um oh, god you know. Other stuff you can't bring, right? Every ounce of extra building material is an ounce of food you don't get to put on the damn ship. So it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. Bigelow is proposing is actually not his idea. It is an initial it's, – it's actually a NASA patent that he purchases, um, the rights to use. So the idea is you send out kind of a, a uh, lightweight but still durable material inflatable space station. So essentially you think of like a balloon. Right. Yep. Um, in space, there's it's cold. Space dirigible because there's no water, because there's no air. There's no fluid in space. There's no uh, gas or liquid floating around out there. Convection, the means by which heat gets transferred most efficiently. So convection is when like a wind like wind blows on your skin. So a fluid is removing heat by moving it by moving next to a surface. Mm-hmm. That's what convection is. That doesn't happen in space. What happens in space is conduction, which is like when you put a hot thing next to a cold thing, two solids, and they just, just by the, the, the movement of their molecules at the, at the interface, do they exchange heat? That process happens much less quickly. Um, so that's, for instance, one example of, of uh, application where these inflatable modules might be useful. You don't actually need a whole lot of space Uh, quote-unquote, between you and the space of space uh, to keep you warm. Um, There doesn't have to be a lot of material there. Um, And because you're out there in kind of a zero-gravity environment, um, all you really need is there's no forces from outside kind of pushing again on your ship itself or on the thing itself that you're living in. So all you really need is like a balloon out there in space. It has to be strong enough to withstand, you know, uh, radiation and and potential mm-hmm. cuts and stuff like that and everything else. But really, if you can get out there and inflate something, it's it's a pretty damn good idea. Um, the initial design of the inflatable modules were first proposed by NASA scientists um, in 1961. Um, this was designed by the Goodyear company, actually, the people that make tires. Um, yeah. Essentially, makes sense. yeah. Essentially, they made yeah. like a giant like a donut that they thought could be put on like the lunar yeah. surface. Um, yeah, they made a giant tire. Yeah, really, they made a they did they, they did they made a giant tire. Um, yeah, that concept was abandoned until the 1990s, and then in 1997, a new proposal for a project called the Transhab or transhabitation module was introduced as being a potential for use on the International Space Station. That initial design was proposed by Lind- by the Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center in Houston um, by Dr. William Schneider. Essentially the way that TransHab would work is it had a multiple so this is from NASA.gov. Um it had a multi-layer inflatable shell. So it says TransHab's inflatable shell consists of multiple layers of blanket insulation, protection from orbital and meteoroid debris, optimized restraint layer, and a redundant bladder with a protective layer. Um it had almost two dozen layers. It was about a foot thick um total, hmm. the inflatable shell itself afterwards. Um and the idea is that they would uh, – the layers would protect from obviously like debris and things by essentially breaking up the particles as they hit the shell. Um, so the idea was that those outer layers would be, I mean, almost like a foam barrier that would just stop these little yeah. pieces of space debris that are moving at bullet speeds. Um, faster, right? Yeah, faster than bullets. Um, the shell also provided – Yeah, it's
1: like Kevlar. It kind of absorbs it. Basically, right? yeah.
0: Um, yeah. It actually says the key to the debris protection is successive layers of Nextel, a material commonly used as insulation under the hoods of many cars, spaced between several inches thick layers of open cell foam, similar to foam used for chair cushions on Earth. The Nextel and foam layers cause a particle to shatter as it hits, losing more and more of its energy as it penetrates deeper. And then many layers, so basically in- all
1: stuff in your backyard is what they're building.
0: K- kind of. So yeah. And it's then amazing to me. And then many layers into the shell is Kevlar. So there is Kevlar there and the Kevlar is really what makes oh, it keep Kevlar. its shape. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and then within that Kevlar is a, is three bladders of what's called combatherm, which is actually initially used in the food packaging industry. Um, and then an inside layer of Nomex cloth, which is fireproof and, uh, you know, again, the idea being to make this thing composed of thin layers of material that are as durable and usable as they, as they can possibly be, right? Um, the core structure, kind of the, the material itself that makes this thing, was made out of lightweight carbon fiber composites. Um, and that would provide, like, the framing for doors and stuff and dividers between compartments and everything else. Um, and then, uh, essentially, it would have a tunnel underneath it that was non-pressurized that would provide the air tanks and other things that would be there for the initial inflation but once it was inflated um, the idea was that it could essentially exist on its own I mean you would have to still provide you know air you would have to provide air to breathe and everything else but essentially like even if no humans lived there and it was just running over time it doesn't really matter what gas is in there it would still hold its shape it would still you know be inflated quote unquote and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to warriors in their own words, wherever you find podcasts. That initial design is abandoned because in 2000 Congress essentially passes a resolution saying we don't want NASA to keep doing study on the Transhab because it's <laughs> it's just it's being they're just not it's just not leading to anything. They thought it was too expensive. They thought the project was kind of going nowhere. And it was just, um, at that time we had no plans to go back to space. So why the hell are we designing ways to live in space? Right. If we don't even have rockets to send to space. So, um, Bigelow Aerospace then basically contacts NASA, the guy who actually wrote the initial idea of the Transhab, Dr. William Schneider. Um, it's actually got he, a call is made between him and Bigelow. Bigelow calls him and says, "Hey, what would it take for me to get this technology from you guys?" And he's like, "Well, classic Bigelow." Yeah, and so he says, "Like, well, let's work together." And Schneider will say in the interviews like he was actually really impressed with Bigelow. Um, he was impressed with the Bigelow engineering team. He was impressed with the people he met. And so Bigelow gets a patent license in 2003 from Schneider and NASA. And, and that's really how those inflatable modules start being a thing. Is that's amazing. Bigelow purchases the patent from this guy, and the guy goes to start working for Bigelow. Um, yeah, that's how that happens. One of the weird things, though, about Bigelow and Marie, we touched on this in an earlier episode, mm-hmm. is his personal feelings on what what space, what what does space mean to the American people? And what does he think about NASA not letting him personally into space? <laughs> so um, he has it. He, he did an interview in Salon by uh, with Amy Standen. And mm-hmm. so she asked him, quote, you've written before about the need to commercialize space. What does that mean, and how does it compare to the prevailing attitude about space, especially NASA's perspective? And he says, quote, it's quite insidious. NASA's version of commercialization is not privatization. Those are two very different words in NASA's mentality. NASA's view of commercialization is we, NASA, own everything. We own all the hardware. We own the facilities to move people back and forth. And when they get there, we own that facility, too. So in our scheme of commercializing things, we intend to be in business. They are a federal federal agency that's tax exempt and that gets $14 billion a year. And so they're paying no income taxes and here they are absolutely in business. They take a hundred percent of the revenue of any company that pays them to do anything. And that's wrong. That's absolutely dead wrong. And it's a huge competitor to free enterprise. Oh and so God. then she says, why do you think NASA has been reluctant to allow tourists in space like Dennis Tito, for example? I um, mean, he says, uh, well, it's the mentality that we own space. NASA stands for no access to space for Americans. NASA. Nats. Natsva. Nats. Natsva. That's right. what it stands for for me to, to me and to most Americans. NASA has exclusive control. Does it? And, Does it a lock on everything having to do with space except for the Russian side. And they were just beyond belief in being rude and obnoxious in response to Dennis Dito's trip. It was just embarrassing to this country. End quote. Now his preference for Russian space uh, travel is going to become important in a couple years. <laughs> but let's
1: let's just pick on this for just a minute. Sure. I think it's an interesting. It, it's not just libertarianism. It's sort of this entitlement, right? Well, it's the, I he, mean, it's
0: the, he's the evil he's the evil CEO from the film aliens and blade runner and every other evil science fiction TV and fantasy. He's
1: certainly, he's certainly making a run for it. I think it's just, what's interesting is it's like, again, it's like, maybe I don't have a right to be in space. Maybe that's something that is actually true. I don't have a right to be in space because my, uh, just because I'm an American does not necessarily mean I have the right to do whatever I want. Well, it's part where I have the right to commercialize something, well, it's part, right?
0: Yeah, like, it's part of a it's part of a it's larger for sale. This is the same. This is the same argument that was that is made every day in courtrooms. That oh, you know, there's oil under the national parks, so the national parks aren't you know. Oh, the government says that you can't own the national parks. Well, that's ridiculous. That's that's destroying free market uh, capitalism, and that's just you know it's that same argument. He's just making it about a much bigger Very area. Much. Than we have currently. I mean, yes. you know, yes. this is really it's a it's a fascinating part of this argument because we talked about this with our interview with uh, MJ Benayas. We talked about this Mike DeMonte as well. Um, this idea of if to the Stars Academy did have an alien material or an alien ship or whatever, do we really want the company that's making the decisions about how we first access space as a civilization to be run by you know, uh, a private citizen. Exactly, a I private a, a private, private citizen, citizen. Yeah. of any sort. No. Right? I don't no. care if I don't care if it's Elon no. Musk. I don't care if it's I don't care if it's Mahatma Gandhi. I don't want a private citizen deciding who gets to go to space. No, I would agree with you.
1: I would agree with you. I don't think one. I, and again, like there's so much more to it than this. Entitle like this. Entitling. Like because it, I have the money, I should – it should be capitalism and I should be able to do it and compete for it. It's like, well, you're – there's security. There, I mean there's just so many other considerations that are we, beyond <laughs> the individual yeah, that I have, am always we, floored at people not being able to get to. We have,
0: just because we, have we, we, a, we have a society and we have rules to protect common people from crazy billionaires like you, like that's why we have these that's, things. Because back
1: anti, I mean, yeah. This- Sorry, go ahead.
0: No, um, because, I- because back before we had those rules, we had serfs, and there were kings who could kill people at, at their whim, and you oh, lived on yeah. their estate, and you lived based on the corporation, yeah. or in the before the industrial revolution, like
1: we had. Child labor, yeah, you know, like we, we, we have a, we have a government that actually cares about well, what we, but eat even, even from the, putting
0: in our food. even from the capitalist side of the argument though, right. Mm-hmm. So much of our paychecks over the years has gone to mm-hmm. fund space travel. True. Yes. The amount of money that the federal government has spent on our behalf as citizens to get to space, to build NASA up far outstrips the amount of money that individual Robert Bigelow has spent. So shouldn't the people of the country that spent that money make that decision as opposed to the individual person?
1: hundred percent agree.
0: Absolutely. hundred agree. Anyways. All right. So crazy. He's, it's, it's nuts. That's a crazy thing. (laughs) The next, the next thing that happens is, so this is around the time that he's now starting to really, you know, Bigelow Aerospace 99 starts to do this stuff. We also have in 2002 – we now know because of a recent release of what are known as the Admiral Wilson documents um, that uh, Eric Davis, one of Dr. Hal Pudov's colleagues at EarthTech, essentially the Robin to Pudov's Batman, appears to have been going around talking to military figures. So all we have are his contemporaneous Mm -hmm. notes. All that these notes show Mm -hmm. us is that Eric Davis wrote these notes and said that they were from 2002. But essentially what the notes say, and then there have been there's been corroboration from the people saying, no, we saw the notes and whatever. But still, the person, the Admiral Wilson, who's in the Admiral Wilson documents, has never come out and said, yes, I am. I had this conversation. um, We talked about aliens, whatever. But essentially what this document and another document that shows the NIDS team looking into the alien autopsy video as if it was real. What these documents show us is that at this time in 2002, while Bigelow is is working with real NASA engineers to build uh, to work on a project that is that is you know was almost on the International Space Station, his other team is looking into the book "The Day After Roswell" and the idea that the United States found a crashed alien and their body at Roswell. And then brought them over and whatever. They're looking into that, and they're also looking into the um, alien autopsy video. That everyone on the Nids team, at least, well, so Eric Davis, Bigelow, and Kit Green, seem to believe that the video, the autopsy video, at the time, was genuine. That video has since come out to be a complete hoax. Um, and now, and, and now Kit Green, and now Kit Green says he does not believe the video is genuine anymore. Yeah, but so it's yeah. not it's not a good it's not a good time period for NIDS, right? They're looking into no. these things that are um, hoaxes or are part of a larger conspiracy mythos. They're not doing science, really. Um, they're just kind of doing stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh God, yeah. And so it's almost embarrassing at that point, too. I mean, yeah. it's just, and so demoralizing to be a scientist and to to want to be able to do things to further this research. And you're looking at a dude in a plastic
0: suit. It can't be easy. It can't be easy. Um, the NIDS team, the NIDS team will dissolve in 2004. And from that point forward, the ranch seemingly sits empty. Although Bigelow keeps people there. We, we think Mm -hmm. at least we think he kept people there. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but Bigelow is busy with real space stuff. 2005 Hunt for the Skinwalker comes out. We've already talked about it. It will make paranormal radio unlistenable for many years to come. (laughs) Then in 2006, Bigelow will finally get to space. Like he won't get to space, but his modules will. He actually sends his uh, transhab modules up on the rock on what is known as the Russian Genesis 1 rocket. Um, it's successful. It works. He then sends another one in, on Genesis 2 in 2007. And so suddenly NASA comes sniffing around and says, well, you know what? Maybe there's something to this guy and his ideas. Right? This guy's really doing stuff here. He got these up into space. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, though, is that in the year 2007, an official with the Defense Intelligence Agency will approach Bigelow supposedly to ask him to come and see the ranch. This person appears to be a Dr. James T. Lekatsky. It being Lekatsky will make sense because soon after what will happen is a black budget project is created for Bigelow to bid on Mm -hmm. to study UFOs through the federal government. This project mm-hmm. is headed by one Dr. James T. Lakatsky, and it will become known as A-A-W-S-A-P, which stands for the Advanced Aerospace Weapon Systems Applications Program. Um, it is a dangerously close. It, the acronym is dangerously close to asswipe. <laughs> it's, it's just it's it da- is. dangerously edging
1: towards asswipe. It is. It is But um, again, he can bid on this. I mean, let's just pause for a second and say that the capitalism is paying off.: It's
0: 100 percent: right? paying It's a government
1: off. contract. Oh it's my God,
0: contract. it's going. It's working out so well. Now,
1: don't you want to see sort of the runners-up for that? There were, love there to were what, evi- what the other
0: proposals?: Evidently there were no other that. evidently we as far as we know, there were no other proposals.: Really? He was the only bidder. Huh. Now this project the the bidding for this project starts in 2008. So 2007 they come look at the ranch, they start talking to Bigelow. 2008 it's open to bidding and only one bidder is found. We know that from uh various reporting here, but it goes right to Bigelow. The people that set up this project will include Dr. will include not Dr. but will include Harry Reed um mm-hmm. as well as uh, Senator Stevens in Inui, again uh, Inui? Can, can never say that name right. Um Inui. But essentially it was black budget money, so it wasn't like a public – it wasn't – it was a public bid, but like not really, right? Um, The program – what it says the program will work on is the following. Inertial electrostatic confinement fusion, advanced nuclear propulsion for manned deep space missions, pulsed high-power microwave technologies, space access – Advanced space propulsion based on vacuum, space-time metric engineering. Guess who's doing that one? It's our favorite man.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Biosensors mm. and biomems, invisibility cloaking, and transversible wormholes, stargates, and negative energy. Again, by EarthTech International. The list of people here on this list of, of people who are said to have been getting funding from this project through Bigelow Aerospace, it's sort of interesting. It's, again, there's always kind of those one or two Bigelow, you know draft picks. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you get me, you get me, you get my team kind of thing. But then there, there are... there Fantasy are Fantasy League! But then there are real people here who are legitimately interesting, right? One of them, Dr. Ulf Leonhardt, is on the Invisibility Cloaking Project. He's actually one of the first people to talk about the potential for an Invisibility Cloaking um, using metamaterials for their optical properties. Now... We don't, we don't really know what's funded here, but it does look mm-hmm. like there, were at least, there was at least theoretical work being funded on this, on this project based on the documentation. Um, and there was work being done on the ranch as well. However, the work being done on the ranch appears to have been mostly on the ranch hands themselves. This project, um, ASAP, ASAP, whatever, will... In the year um, 2008, join or or get a kind of subgroup. The subgroup is called ATIP. The Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. One of the projects, the ATIP project becomes specifically to study UFOs, while the other project starts to look at other things. um, And it has more of a broad basis. The reason being supposedly... That it makes others in the government uncomfortable. They, they have religious objections to some of the things being studied or thought about.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, for those that don't know, ATIP tip is the project run by Luis Elizondo. Mm-hmm. So this is where we have and can say that there is a seemingly direct connection between Bigelow and Luis Elizondo. And so from Luis Elizondo and Pudoff, and Davis to To The Stars Academy. Um, ETIP will be dissolved, eventually, and Elizondo will leave, and then we will join up with To The Stars Academy, doing very much so some of the similar research that it appears Bigelow was being funded to do while he was in the government, or while he was working on this black budget project. mm Hmm. <laughs> and so, with that... Part of the story now, we come to the early 2010s. Around 2009 is where we're going to leave it off here. Bigelow has gotten to space two times. He's put two things up into space. He has gotten a black budget project with the federal government. Cherry gig. Elizondo has come into the picture now, working on this project uh, for which Bigelow was the only bidder, or the only, you know, the... the, the let's not say the only bidder. He was the only bidder we know of so far and, or to date, I should say. And Mm -hmm. he is, he is the person who will win the contract. His company is the one that will win the contract.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And the ranch itself or kind of the UFO research is now shifting away to another group called ATIP. This, this group run by run by Elizondo. But 2009, Ends up being kind of an interesting year for Bigelow because it's the year that he gets back involved with MUFON. And that, uh, Marie, is where we're going to pick up next episode. Oh,
1: God. You got to say. Oh, listen, my music's going. Um,
0: <laughs> I was like. You got to give like, it to him. Whoa! On the fly editing. That's great. But a little, little,
1: uh, you gotta. I mean, you have to say. Here's the thing: for for a cat that's been doing this for as long as he's been doing it, he's he has an incredible amount of fortitude. If you can say nothing else about Bigelow besides money, which he has all, which he's basically earned all himself. Like all this money is not inherited wealth, for the most part, right? I mean, very little of it is. It's it is all him hustling and then. And then still, like, staying on this enough to be, like... Again, at some point, you would just want to go golfing.
0: Well, it's crazy... But he doesn't. It's, it's crazy that... It's crazy that the... I don't know. To me, it's crazy that the... the they main, just keep
1: coming back to him. Yeah, it's yeah the, exactly, exactly.
0: It's nuts to me that he keeps... It's not, okay, it's not nuts to me that Bigelow keeps getting these contracts, because, frankly, at this point now, Bigelow has only had really one federal government contract. That's
1: official, yes. Yeah, yes. so the only, official Agre- one
0: the only official one he's had, yes. though, has actually led to those, has led to the reinvigoration of a project that NASA decided was dead, right? NASA said these things were never going anywhere, and then Bigelow brings two of them to space. That that is like publicly a very good track record, I would say the 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 issue is that in the background, he's got these guys running around the country, you know, looking for evidence of alien autopsy films and bodies. And he's got his own X-Files running around. He's sort of. Yeah, it's like
1: this weird collector. It's like nothing's getting past him. Right? There's nothing out there, but he's not going to get his... There's no pie that he's not going to get his fingers in.
0: It's very interesting. It's some very interesting stuff. All right. dear listeners, thank you so much for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Chris Cox. We're here with my co-host, Marie Mayhew.
1: (gasps) Oh, my God. And we still have an episode left.
0: Oh, my God. I can't believe it. Next episode. Round this out. Next episode, we will go to the stars. To the stars. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host... Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at Mad Scientist Pod or at Team Giant Squid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram... And all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm -hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. We love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woohoo! And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you.
1: This has been a damn it chippy production.
2: Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world.